Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sci, a podcast about black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in our marriage. Then <laughs> I am so, so, so excited because today we're going to be discussing the magic, the art, the chaos that is love, craft, country. This show was so powerful because it was primarily led by a writer's room full of black writers. Also, the captain of this whole ship was Misha Green, Jordan Peele, and our boy J.J. Abrams. We'll forgive him. Didn't he, like, fuck up a Star Wars movie or something? No, he made the... Oh, he made the no, greatest no, one. No, no, he, no, you're right. He, no, he made I thought show. Ryan Johnson made the greatest one. You're right. Oh, oh, did, did I do it? You did Well, J.J. Abrams has now been invited back to the cookout because he saved himself with Lovecraft Country. We're going to be discussing Lovecraft Country. It is absolutely uh, written by a white dude. The book. The book. Oh, yes. Matt Ruff. We'll, we'll, we'll invite him to the cookout as well. He, he gets an invite. He gets a plate. Yeah, sure. The book is fine. The show is infinitely better. Which is rare. Yeah. We're going to be discussing every single episode, but there's a lot to discuss. The season has ended, so there will be spoilers for every single episode. We have 10 episodes to get through, and so we'll do about four minutes per episode. We'll give you the name of the episode, 30-second recap. If I'm speaking, it'll be a two-minute recap. Uh, We'll go through themes, character development, key takeaways, lingering thoughts, all that fun stuff. So, Amber, take it away. Episode one. Sun down. Start that fucking timer. All right. All right. Here we go. Okay. So the pilot of the show was absolutely incredible. It opens with Atticus or Tick is his name. And he has this really like obscure dream about Cthulhu. Well, who I know know is Cthulhu, but Cthulhu and Jackie Robinson and being in the trenches in the Korean War. And then he's woken up and he's on this bus where we see right away that he is sitting in the back of the bus where the coloreds sit or the Negroes have to sit on this bus. So you're brought back to the reality and the, the horror that is racism. Um, and he's returned home from that Korean War because his father is missing. And in this episode, we are introduced to so many characters but they have depth to them. There's Uncle George, who is basically the, he creates this Negro, safe Negro travel guide. He's like making the green book to tell people where it's safe to travel in the U.S. as a black person. And then we also meet his wife, Hippolyta. I'm not going to say too much because I'm going to cry right here, right now. Uh, So Uncle George and Hippolyta have a daughter named Dee, which is different from the book I heard. I heard in the book they had a son named Horace, but we switched it up for the movie. So they have a daughter named Dee. And Uncle George is going out of town to, you know, write about a new experience. And they are basically chased out of this town, which was known as Sundown Town. And Sundown Towns basically are saying, like, there can be no black people in this town by the time the sun goes down. So this is the episode where I was a little bit unsure mentally, if I'm going to be honest, if I could handle this season as a whole, because it is very, it's, it's very triggering and heavy to watch these like very graphic, clear examples of racism all over the country from the 1950s. Like, you know, we've talked in the past about how much I hate time travel and things like that because of this very reason. But this was different because we were introduced to these monsters in the end, these Shoggoths. And so this whole first episode is a little bit of a juxtaposition between like what's more scary, right? Ben, racial horror or these like Lovecraftian monsters. What did you think about episode one? 
I enjoyed it. I also love the fact that when they're traveling, they're going to, they're basically in the East Coast and they're experiencing East Coast racism, like Northern East Coast racism of the 1950s. The decision to put uh, racism in the North on the East Coast is important. The most terrifying part was this racist sheriff who follows our team of characters out of the sundown town. But as they're leaving, he shoots out their back window before, right before they get out the county line. That is absolutely terrifying. And in the book, that's relayed through a, like a secondary story. So the fact that they copied that and pasted it with our main characters, I thought was such a brilliant idea. Yeah, to me, that race, the, the sheriff racing them out of town was far more scary than these, like, shock-off night creature monsters that we see at the very end. So, to, oh, that's our time. So, to wrap up episode one, we meet Letty, Atticus, and Uncle George, and they're taking a trip trying to look for Atticus's father. Okay, that's my tab. You gonna do episode two? Yeah. Get into it. Go. So, episode two, Whitey's on the Moon, is about us discovering that magic is real and white wizards have the power to use this magic. Turns out Atticus has a ancestor who was a slave owner and this powerful magician. And so these group of wizards want to use Atticus's blood to bring back the light of Eden and receive eternal power, blah, blah, blah. It's super tropey, but it turns out that this group of people end up all killed at the end of the episode. So episode one and episode two are sort of like this short story. We're introduced to the big bad Samuel Braithwaite, but it turns out he's not the big bad because by the end of the episode, he's fucking destroyed and his daughter, Christina Braithwaite, becomes the primary villain. What do you think about this episode, Whitey's on the Moon? Well, I want to start by saying throughout the whole season, they have these like excerpts of people doing poetry and things like that. So I thought it was super powerful to put the Whiteys on the moon excerpts in this episode. Like that was something I've loved throughout the entire season. But I loved seeing like, I don't know, this like really bougie KKK all being destroyed. I think that was very satisfying for black viewers, for white viewers, for everybody. It's like, oh, this is clearly just the KKK with racks on racks on racks. And I thought that they would be, you know, infused throughout the whole entire season and we would see them destroyed at the very end of the season finale. So to see them destroyed here was like, oh shit, well, what's going to happen now? I felt the same way about uh, their decision to kill Uncle George. I'm sure you were getting to that part. But See, I mean, you know, this this whole cast is like an all-star cast. So the minute I saw like Courtney B. Vance was going to be a part of it, I was like, yes. And then when he was killed, I was like, what's happening here? So this show is just so great because everything that you think is going to happen, you're kind of like, wait, this person died. And then this person died. So where is this going to go? It was hard for me to make predictions, but that helped me get out of my head about trying to follow the genre. This episode also introduces the trope of the haunted house. And there's these really terrifying scenes where first they're invited into this house where the sons of Adam are going to have this great ritual. And Atticus is automatically a member of the sons of Adam because his ancestor was the founder of the sons of Adam. And while they're in this house, 
most terrifying part was the hallucinations that Uncle George, Atticus, and Letty have. Like, Letty has this hallucination that Atticus and her are about to have sex, but it turns out his penis is a snake. <laughs> that got real biblical and real ugly, and it's just like, ew, ah. We're also we're also seeing Jiha for the first time. She jumps out of a closet. Jiha is Atticus's lover in Korea, and she ends up having a much larger part. And that shows up nowhere in the book. I was like, "Whoa, what is going on? We are out of comfortable waters here." Uh, and it and then we're also introduced that Uncle George actually is in love with his brother's wife, who has passed away, his brother Montrose, who we find out was kidnapped by the Sons of Adam and being held hostage to bring Atticus to the haunted mansion to steal his blood. And so we're immediately brought into a whole bunch of intrigue. Atticus and Letty's, like, budding a romantic relationship. Mm. Uh, Uncle George's uh, love with... Uh, Dora. Dora, uh, Atticus's mother. And there's this implication that by the end of the episode that maybe Atticus's father is Uncle George and not Montrose. I mean, I love what this episode did. Like I said, I loved that we learn that Atticus is related to this super, you know, decked out KKK group. Not that he is related to them, but it's just like, well, this is what happens when you rape slaves and then they are part of your lineage now. So that's why he has this power. I remember thinking, like, how is he related to this white man? And I was like, oh, obviously. And one thing I do want to say, like, right here, right now, that I don't love about the whole thing. I know that they had to fall in love, but I just was not sold on Letty and Atticus's relationship. And we can get into that a little bit later, of course. But I remember seeing that when Letty has that hallucination with Atticus coming into her room and having sex with her for the first time I remember thinking like I thought Letty was this like badass boss chick like they were trying to set it up as she's like this like super fierce independent like settles down for no man type and then right off the first like the second episode we're seeing like she's secretly in love with Atticus or things like that so I don't know that they just didn't really have a lot of chemistry to me like they're both phenomenal actors Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett you know Journey will Smollett her ass into a movie she's got the resume but I just wasn't sold on their romance yeah Journey Smollett's character is a photographer she's a bohemian traveler uh, she does like a lot of political activism in the show so the fact that they start to define her role as mm -hmm. Atticus's love interest right in the beginnings did seem a little off. Also, that's nowhere in the book as well. So. Right. Let's move on to the next episode, yeah? Episode three, Holy Ghost. This is yours. And this is where we really get to see Letty come into her full badass self. Yes, we do. So let me take it away. We start in a church scene. Uncle George is dead at this point. And we, again, start to see this budding romance between Tick and Letty, which I'm not a huge fan of, but... You know, we can't have an aesthetic without somebody falling in love. So Letty has mysteriously won the lottery. And so she's bought this huge house on the north side. Um, if you're in Chicago, you know that the north side is like, Chicago is segregated. So the north side is a very white neighborhood. And the Chicago south side is primarily black or just black. I wouldn't even say primarily. So she is being harassed, like by honking horns in the middle of the night, by bricks in her window. She is being completely harassed by all of her white neighbors because they don't want her in town. And also 
it's, you know, if that wasn't bad enough, she's also being haunted by spirits in this haunted house. So there are horrors inside of the house and horrors outside of the house. And she has acquired this house because it, it, it used to belong to this doctor. His name was Hiram Epstein. And he's sort of similar to that Tuskegee project. He would use black people as human experiments. And so the this house of horrors is haunted by all of these black people that were killed by being experimented on. So Letty is dealing with a crazy house, lots of borders, and then also dealing with white people harassing her outside of the house. This episode is so interesting to me because it reminds me in The Ballad of Black Tom that we talked about last week about some like a person just taking a lump sum of money without really questioning where it's from. Did you get any of those vibes? You're just like, how would, why would she just take a lump sum of money and not wonder like, oh, who gave me this? In this show, Letty actually is belie- believes that she got the money from her mom. Like her mom gives her the money. Yeah, but she wouldn't think to herself like, well, why would my mom give me money and not my siblings? Where did my mom even come across money? I, I know that if... If my mother, God forbid, passed away and then I acquired millions of dollars, I would be very skeptical. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, you have to understand that her character has been traveling around. She's a bohemian. So this idea of now I can actually buy a home on my own is so um, attractive. And since she buys it on the north side, that in itself is a form of protest, which checks out with Letty's character. For sure. But she tells Ruby that she won the lottery. Ruby is her sister, which we haven't introduced yet. My fave! She's my fave! And there's... They have some tension there, right? Uh, uh, Letty can go travel and do whatever she wants, and Ruby's sort of uh, stuck in Chicago, constantly trying to apply uh, to Marshall Fields and Company, which is such a big part of Chicago downtown and getting a job there would absolutely change your life. And she simply cannot. <laughs> she keeps on applying. She cannot. Um, it's also not lost on me here that right away. So just to give you some context, if you haven't seen the show, Ruby, her sister, Ruby Baptiste, who is my favorite character, hands down, is this uh, curvy, fuller figured, dark skinned, beautiful black woman. And Letty, who is played by Journey Smollett, is very tiny, very light skin, has a, uh, you know, silkier curl pattern. So the and they're both sisters. So it's already setting up this dynamic of Letty's the more desirable sister, you know, based on society's beauty standards and colorism and things like that. Letty can travel across the world and be an activist. And Ruby is getting all of these typing lessons and getting all of these certifications so that she can work at Marshall Fields and she's just not being hired. And so I think the the show did a really good job casting those two women because we automatically sort of see that intra racism start to take place. And Ben, I just have a quick question for you about just like for fun, going back to this haunted house dynamic, like what do you think was more frightening if, if it was you, like, do you think these like dead spirits haunting her in the house were it? Because remember we saw like a floating hand at one point messing with her. Or do you think it's the white people harassing her outside of the house? What's worse, looking jealous or crazy? I guess the racism that she experiences outside of the house, Letty is 
equipped to deal with that. So at one point, she walks outside of the house in slow motion with a fucking yes, bat. Lemonade! Yes, she has lemonade. a lemonade moment and she breaks every single uh, car window. And, <laughs> and then she immediately like gets on her knees with her hands up, knowing that the cops are about to come and arrest her. That scene is absolutely epic, but the ghost in the house, you're not really sure what to do with. Like, those moments are very fucking scary. But the great part is it turns out that all these people that were murdered by Hiram actually get their revenge because there's this final scene at the episode where Letty locks hands with all these uh, tortured ghosts, uh, which she has been discovering through her photography and in her dark room, like, taking pictures and seeing their faces in the pictures, which were really... That was very scary. But there's this really healing, restorative moment where they bind Hiram's ghost using the power of all of the people who were murdered. And the scene goes from these ghosts being translucent to being solidified as they get their revenge on mm. Hiram. Which, that, again, not in the book but done really well in the show. So that was one of my most favorite parts of the entire show. Mm -hmm. I think looking back, that was some really good setup for like foreshadowing for things we were going to see later about the power of like, we as this community can take down these motherfuckers All, one by one. One by Also, I really enjoyed, I really enjoy elevator beheadings, like horror. <laughs> ho like, any horror in an elevator is my favorite thing. And so... There are these, like, three boys who go into the house to harass Letty in this white neighborhood, and they're just brutally murdered. Yes! And in the book, they're not murdered. They're just, like, t they're just scared. And But in, in the TV show, they are, like, horrifically murdered. I'm here for it, because there are so many black people that are murdered and brutalized in this show, so it's like... Yeah, y'all shouldn't have, like, a nice, peaceful death, too. Like, everybody wants some, get some. Two quick things I want to say about this episode before we move on to episode four. One, I, at the end of this episode, Atticus uh, finds out that Christina Braithwaite is who gave Liddy all of this money to get this house. We find that out, so she's been plotting and scheming. Secondly, I want to just give an actor that didn't get their just due on this episode, I think it's that bat. Hot Sauce the Bat came up in and out of the series, played their role. Emmy Nam, if you ask me, that bat held it down. The baseball bat. The baseball bat. The baseball bat. The baseball bat. Let's move on. Episode four, A History of Violence. This is the fun pulp adventure story. And... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What is pulp? Uh, oh, sorry. Pulp is a type of paper that stories were written on early 1900s to like 1950s, 1960s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these uh, magazines uh, produce these very fun, campy stories that think Indiana Jones is very pulpy. So it is a formulaic story where the adventure and the good guys win. And so this is a very fun, pulpy adventure story. And it turns out that there is a book called the Book of Names, where anybody who has this book can learn the language of Adam, which allows you to have all the power and magic. Mm -hmm. And this book was hidden away by Hiram, 
the owner of the haunted house. And so in this episode, our characters have to go to a museum and get this book. And since Atticus has the right blood, which every time I say that, it... Because it's like the right blood. Yeah. That's what it is. But it's also, it's also giving the ind- indication that magic is only passed down through blood. And Harry Potter, Harry Potter dealt with that, mm-hmm. right? Like your muggle Star blood. Wars, yeah. Yeah, Star Wars deals with that. And that's, that's just a racist idea to begin with. Yeah, because it's typically like the white people that have the force. Mm-hmm. This episode made me realize that the show is presenting itself as very serious, but at the same time, there's this Doctor Who element, right? Mm-hmm. Where, so even the graphics itself are very... Uh, yeah, we, we got into this episode where... So we love it because it was like sort of like the Goonies with this like trip and trying to find this book of names, but there were times where we're like, damn, the CGI is just so bad right here. Like, come on, HBO. I know you got the budget. I pay you every month. Like, step it up, but still so, so, so good. So Montrose... And Letty and Atticus go to this museum to find this book, and they end up going deep down into the center of the earth. And Journey to the Center of the Earth is a is a, a great sort of pulp adventure story. Oh, I thought you were just saying, like, Journey Smollett. No, no, it's called Journey to the Center of the Earth. And so they actually... There's a boy at there's one point... There's a double here. Yeah, there's a boy at one point who reads that book mm-hmm. in the library who's telling them to... Shh, when oh yes 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 i do remember that yeah so oh hbo come yeah. on misha green yeah so he the so there's a conversation at one point where letty and atticus are having the library and there's this little boy who's very like sassy and it's like telling them to be quiet and yeah. he's reading it's the library yeah and he's re- reading a journey to the center of the earth okay. uh anyway uh they go down there, they discover that this book is locked away with a bunch of indigenous people, uh, the uh, the Ottawa people, and they meet an indigenous person, Yahima, who has been mummified but brought back to life when they get the book. Mm-hmm. And she's intersex, so you have, like, this first, like, very clear queer character. And we're also introduced that Montrose as well... Um, might be queer as well, or or a gay man, and uh, so there's that element as well. We're like, yay! There's there's queer representation. However, this story, the ending of this episode is really awful because mm-hmm. Yahima, the intersex indigenous person, is brutally murdered by Montrose right at the end because Montrose doesn't want his son to learn about the Book of Names. And put himself in greater danger. And that just felt so... It felt irresponsible. And I think I think Misha Green has owned that irresponsibility. But it's it sucks because in an effort to show the complexities of Montrose's character, we sacrificed learning more about indigenous people, two-spirit people, people who have not been represented on screen, we, we sacrificed that narrative, and I think that was a misstep, and I, I hope that if they get renewed for season two, they find a way to redeem themselves there. Like, you know, again, we love this show, but this is art, and we get to critique it, and that just felt very past eliminating that person's narrative. I, I remember thinking, like, wait, what? Why did, <laughs> why did she just get her throat slit in this very violent way? Like, what's, what's happening here? So, I agree with you there. 
This episode is also seeing Ruby starting her own narrative. So at one point, she runs into Christina Braithwaite's right-hand man, William. And they run into each other in a bar, and it ends up with them having some, like, pretty intense staircase sex. Um, so R- Ruby ends up going with this white man who is connected with Christina Braithwaite, and that's sort of giving us, like, an in- a more intrigued plot. Also, Ruby, at this point, she has repeatedly applied to um, the Marshall and Field, like, department store, and... She continues to be turned down, even though she has an enormous amount of education for this experience. And at one point, she goes to the store and discovers that they already hired a black woman. A black woman mm-hmm. And she's like, fuck, they can't have two black women. So, you know, I had a conversation with you about that one time in the past or before. It's like when you go to an audition room and see. As an actor, when you go to a space and see multiple black women there, you're like, well, they're only going to take one of us. And then it, it, it automatically creates this notion that we're all in competition with each other, even though there's plenty of room at the table and we all deserve a seat at the table. In our minds, they they only need one person to fill their diversity quota. And so we are looking at each other not as like, not as like, I want you to win, but as like, wow, this other powerful black woman is my competition. And we see a little bit of that that internal conflict there. Also, one more thing I want to note about this episode is that in the house downstairs, we see who we, who I didn't catch this at the first time, uh, but we see Emmett Till and lots of other kids playing with a Ouija board downstairs. We now know that to be Emmett Till, but he asks the Ouija board, like, am I going to have a good time on my trip in Mississippi? And the Ouija board says, no, and I just got chills. I I mean, this, sh- this show is freaking brilliant and so intentional with everything that they do. Um, they even had Emmett Till's nickname in there, which was Bobo. And so they, they just captured all of those. We've, we've all heard about Emmett Till. We've all mourned the loss of Emmett Till and, and talked about how how visceral that loss was for the black community. And I think just like putting a face and a character to... Emmett Till in this story was just haunting. Also, we discover that Montrose is hanging a lot out at this gay bar. And at one point, a character feels, Atticus feels that, I think he says, you know, I'm not a sissy. And I was like, wait, I was sort of confused because I did not know sissy was like a derogatory term for a gay person. When I was growing up, I was called a sissy if I did something like like effeminate, but I never so or like weak. I but I never associated that with like. You didn't being, think at the time that that were that was an insult. I knew it was an insult, but I didn't know it was like oh these. This is what you call someone who is gay. You call them mm-hmm. sissy, and I went down a long hole of, like, 1950s, like, queer culture. And there's a song, a blues called song called Sissy Man Blues. And in one, of the, in one of the lyrics, it says, if you can't bring a woman, bring me a sissy man. And this was, uh, a, a man is singing it. It's a song supposed to be sung by a man. And a sissy man is literally the phrase they use for someone who is gay. Mm-hmm. And... I think that it's it's a representation of 
gay men, but in in the 1950s. And I think the more the, every time I like research that about queer culture, there what there is a very there is a strong queer culture, and we actually get mm-hmm. more in depth. Of Bronzeville drag scene. Yes, we in, do. Uh, we episode live. five, a strange case. Amber, you want to take? Yeah, it away? that's a great segue. Thank you for bringing that point up. So, uh, in a strange case, we find out Yahima, our two spirit indigenous, like the one person, has been uh, beheaded and killed by Montrose, Atticus's father. And then Atticus finds out and beats his father's ass. And we, as the audience, are starting to feel conflicted about Atticus a little bit because he's this protagonist that we love, but we see these very violent tendencies that he has. You know, he might be have PTSD because he's a war vet, but we start to like, we go in and out of loving and hating Atticus here. He's definitely seen some shit in Korea. Mm-hmm. You're getting the sense, oh, this this person is not your standard pulp hero. Agreed. Like this guy, because when he beats his father uh, for killing Yahima, because he realizes, oh, the book is gone, and he doesn't. Uh, Montrose doesn't want his son to learn magic. Atticus is pissed, and he. He's gonna, he's not just beating him up. He is looking to he's fucking kill, kill. He's looking to kill, kill him. He's he's fighting to kill, which is a very like, ooh, can we root for this person now? Which is why this show is so fucking brilliant. Um, but also, so Montrose has been beaten up, but we start to learn a little bit more about Montrose and his sexuality, and we learn that he and Sammy have a relationship. This the the bartender at, at this bar. Uh, Sammy's also a drag queen in this, like you said, this Bronzeville drag scene, and we see. Shangela and Monet Exchange and all of these other amazing drag queens that I, we have not really seen outside of, you know, drag race and drag events. It's so powerful to see these characters, uh, and these superstars in a, in a black sci-fi fantasy show. I think going back to what Ben just said, it just reinforces like queer people are here. They've always been here. And even in the 1950s, they were there and we have to, have to, have to keep showing those stories and their stories, uh, because they are just so powerful. So I, I remember just like completely losing my shit when I saw Monet Exchange and Shangela in this scene. But so we, we learned a little bit more about Montrose as well. Montrose has a relationship with Sammy, but it's not a very loving relationship. It's very sexual. And then he sort of treats Sammy like shit. I, you know, he's dealing with his own internalized homophobia and self-hate. We also see that Montrose has a drinking problem. And they go to this ballroom and we see Montrose sort of letting loose and being free for the very first time. He... Typically, him and Sammy just, like, fuck, and then he's, like, yelling at Sammy for cooking his dinner the wrong way or whatever, but, and all the other drag queens are like, why are you still with him, Sammy? Like, you don't deserve this. Like, you're, uh, you're an incredible person. Why are you still putting up with Montrose's shit? But we then learned that Montrose, like, some, some way, somehow in this ballroom scene, he kind of, like, takes his wall down and just is like, wow, Sammy has been here for me and I love this man. And they have uh, a reconciliation of sorts. And that is juxtaposed with this this idea of Montrose finding freedom with Ruby and William. So Ruby Baptiste, Letty's sister, dark-skinned, beautiful, curvy black femme, is introduced to this spell that will make her into a white woman. And so she goes and applies for the job and Marshall feels that she always wanted as this white woman. And obviously, not only does she get the job, but she is 
put into a management role right away. And so I think as a black person, we're all conflicted with this, right? Because we're thinking like, well, who wants to be a white woman, whatever, whatever. And it's not about that. This whole episode is exploring like, what would it be like to be seen for the very first time? And in America, that the notion that I have to be white to be seen and to be treated like a whole person to be treated with decency like at one point as a white woman she's like deranged and psychotic and ends up on the south side of chicago and all of the police officers and people on the street are like are you okay do you need help and she's for the first time ever just treated like like a person in need like a person and i think we all want to feel that way like i remember watching it being like well i don't want to be a white woman but i would love to one day be seen as a, a whole human being with feelings. And I will never be able to feel that way completely. I mean, how did you feel about this episode? Like, This is the body horror episode. And that itself, her transformation, this bloody, gruesome transformation, mm. where the skin is actually like peeled off of herself, is absolutely horrific. And it shows it shows that for you to go through any sort of code switching, in this case, body switching... There is a shedding of yourself. Mm-hmm. And there, the symbolism is incredibly oh. violent and perfect and powerful. And I loved how they dealt with this in the show compared to the book. And, uh, and this has been done before, by the way, like other... These, like skin suits. And- yeah, skin suits and other writers have, have explored this, specifically regarding to like race. But seeing this on TV, um, I can't think of. I'm sure someone has made a student film or something. But the way that this was done was really, really effective. Yeah, don't eat before this episode because the, the, the ripping of the flesh is pretty intense. We're also introduced to one of the most, I think one of the most, I think cringing parts and confusing parts. I don't, I don't even know how to describe this scene. Amber, can you? Well, Ruby, uh, who has been treating the other, you know, going back to like black women are seen as each other's competition. As a white woman, Ruby is treating the other black woman like complete trash at the job, to be honest. Maybe this is a, a function of her like, wow, I'm white now, like. Like, whiteness really is seeing yourself as more superior than other people. Or maybe it's going back to that idea of, like, this other black woman didn't have any of the qualifications that I had and she got this job. She, as a white woman, is treating her black co-worker like trash. And then later in the episode, she discovers that the boss, who is a man, is being sexually aggressive and sort of assaulting and harassing the other black woman as well. So she's like, wow, I'm harassing this woman. And then this manager is essentially trying to rape this black coworker. So Ruby, as a white woman, finds all this out and she gets revenge on him. So she she goes and she goes to his office as if she's submitting her letter of resignation, saying, like, well, I can't have this job anymore because I'm just so attracted to you. And she ends up I don't know if she kills him, but she violently rapes him with a high heel shoe it, it was bad it was like it gave us that same you know we don't ever want to celebrate somebody being raped but it, it gave me that same like revenge joy that the letty lemonade moment did if i'm being honest i was like get his white ash because he is 
assaulting the women that he hires at this job. And it's so bizarre because all Ruby wanted was a job at Marshall Fields, right? And I think once she got there and saw all of these, like, harassment and different things happening, she was like, wow, the one thing I aspire to be, I don't even want anymore. So yeah, that was great. Speaking of blood and violence and guts, let's get into episode six, yeah? Episode six is Meet Me in Dagoo. The first... 30 minutes is all in Korean. And, and we're introduced to Jiha, which we saw in the second episode. And she is the love interest of Atticus from the Korean War. She is a nurse that is caring for U.S. soldiers. And that she has sort of this tense relationship with her mother who tells her to, like, find a man, bring home a man. And you're like, oh, this is just, like, stereotypical. And it turns out that her... Mother actually decided to have Jiha possessed by a Kamiyo, which is a nine-tailed fox spirit that fucking consumes men after having sex with them and, like, destroys them into a bloody pulp. So when her mother told her, when Jiha's mother told her to bring home a man, it was so that um, Jiha could, like, eat them, essentially. Yeah, it's like an energy source. Yeah, so, and the reason that Jiha is possessed with this Camillo is that her stepfather was raping her, and her mother, Jiha's mother, wanted her father to die. And so she decided to have her daughter possessed by a nine-tailed fox spirit to kill her husband. (laughs) I mean, thinking about explaining that to my mom and being like, you should watch this show because a nine-tailed fox spirit possessed this guy, like... It's so much, but it's so powerful. Oh, I'm so sorry. You go, you go. Well, that just reminds me of that time we watched American Gods. Oh, God. With yeah, your and this, family. Yeah, we watched American Gods with my family, and Ben's like, we should watch this show. It's so good. And then, like, we see this scene of this, like, completely naked black woman just, like, sucking this white, this whole white man's body into her vagina. And I was like, damn, Ben, what the fuck? We watch it like it's Christmas. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the first 30 minutes... All in Korean, really great. But Jiha actually sees Atticus murder some of her friends who are accused of being communists. And she resolves to uh, seduce Atticus and kill him. And however, like every single damaged person, damaged people attract damaged people. Jiha and Atticus end up falling in love. And that's the episode. That Uh, is the episode. And you know, like I said, I think this was your favorite episode, right? Yes. This is my second favorite episode of the entire series, episode six. And I want to say, I hate this. I hate this because black love is so important, but I felt more chemistry between Atticus and Jiha. And that just is what it is. I know him and we, we didn't get into this, but a couple of episodes back, Atticus and Letty had sex. And I think he like, that was her first time having sex is what Letty said. And even when they were having sex, I just was not convinced. Both Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett, incredible actors, but this, this chemistry between Jamie Chung and Jonathan Majors just felt more like raw and believable to me because Atticus was put in the hospital where G.I. was a nurse and he broke his glasses so he couldn't read. And so then we're seeing G.I. 
read the story to him, even though she knows at this point, wow, you're the same soldier that killed one of my best friends. And we, we've gotten to that talk about like soldiers are just so trained to just carry out these duties. Like it wasn't personal for them. It's just a job of shooting people in the head, which is why people come back home. So freaking damaged. But that relationship like there's there's also I don't want to get too far into it but there's also this point where Jamie Chung's character is just like obsessed with uh the American movie Meet Me in St. Louis starring Judy Garland and Atticus sets up this beautiful like date night for her to watch this movie and they put so much more thought into developing their relationship that it was really hard for me to see Letty and Atticus's relationship in the same way for me. Also, Atticus has a friend who's a Korean-American. This Korean-American character, I don't even remember his name, but he has so much character development. He talks about being marginalized, uh, being both Korean and American. At one point, Korean-American soldier is walking with Jiha, and these American soldiers say, like, make sure she's not your sister, which implying that, oh, they're going to have sex, but he's not. The Korean-American soldier uh, Atticus's buddy is just taking Jiha to meet with Atticus. But even this, even that itself is done very quickly. This actor has a very short scene, but is given so much depth. I can't even remember mm-hmm. his name. This episode is so carefully thought out and it's bloody, it's violent, it's beautiful and romantic all at the same time. It is. And it's so, it's so powerful because we've seen the trope of like just silent Asian characters in so many movies. So unless it's like Crazy Rich Asians, The Farewell, unless we are like watching a movie, Parasite, where it's set in those Asian countries, we don't really see, and this is the writer's room and everything else, we haven't seen fully realized Asian characters and stories, in my opinion. I'm really trying to think about a movie that had an Asian character in it that wasn't just set in that Asian country. So this episode, I think this episode could win an award. I don't know how episodes and things like that work and, you know, who who's to say this governing body is, but this episode truly, like, was a game changer. Which brings us to our episode seven game changer, the episode that is my favorite of the season. It's I Am. And we learned that Hippolyta, played by the powerful, powerful Anjanou Ellis, uh, she is on a journey to discover what happened to her husband because she's being told her husband, George, was killed by white cops. But some things are not adding up. And obviously, uh, Atticus and Letty don't want to say like, well, he was killed by wizards and magic. So Hippolyta is not falling for that bullshit. She's, she's also this incredible explorer and astronomer. And we start to see her sort of take back control of her story and her narrative. She figures out that she can time travel. Anjanou Ellis, who... If, if you're not familiar, Anjanou Ellis has been in every black movie since I was born. Like, I have seen her in Undercover Brother, If Beale Street Can Talk. Even this year, I saw her as Maddie Moss Clark in The Clark Sisters. She's, she's literally, I've seen her in Ray. She is very careful about the work that she does. And so if you know that she's going to be in something, you know it's going to be damn good. But what I didn't expect, and Under, this is why... Undercover I, Brother. Undercover Brother was still a hit. I stand by that. I'm taking that to the grave. <laughs> Undercover brother, Anjanou Ellis is the freaking goat, and she and she deserves her flowers just like everybody else. I started crying 15 minutes into this episode, and then I couldn't stop. Ben, you remember this, right? Yeah. And you were just, I was 
sobbing uncontrollably with so many tears of joy because I never, ever thought I would live to see the day where a a 50-year-old woman with a body that looks like mine, a curvier, more fuller-figured woman, a dark-skinned woman, would be able to travel across space and time. I, I'm getting emotional now thinking about it. I never thought I would be able to see that on TV in my generation. And this episode showed me all of that. I, I, I saw for the first time that black people, like regular, regular black people, not like Holly Berry and people who have private chefs and work out all day and have, gore, you know, desired hair patterns. I never thought just regular black girls that look like me would be able to travel in space and, and dance with Josephine Baker in Paris. When when have we seen that? Maybe I haven't seen enough movies or whatever, but Misha Green, if, if this was your like love letter to black women, because this episode blew my mind. I'm gonna stop because I love this show so much. For They could have probably ended the season here and I would have just wailed. That that did so much for me and for for my imagination. Thank you, Misha Green, for episode seven. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, it's so it's so good. So it it really empowers um, uh, Hippolyta and centers her. This is her story. I am is her story. And then we also learn Letty's pregnant. We don't care. <laughs> we don't care. Like I said, I'm not bought into Atticus's and Letty's relationship. I know that she has to be pregnant because it's like. That raises the stakes, but honestly, Journey Smollett, like, I love you, Journey Smollett. You, you been Smollett. You hold down that Smollett name, but, like, Journey is who everyone, who society sees and deems as beautiful. She is. She's tiny. She's very light, fair-skinned. She's, I think she's mixed race, so she has, like, that softer curl, like, everything else. And so, this was... Hippolyta's episode. We see her as an Amazonian warrior. We see her as an astronomer. We see her as a dancer uh, with an, with this Josephine Baker in this like very queer world of dance of black people who have escaped to Paris because fuck America. I mean, this, this episode was beyond my wildest dreams. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Misha Green. Episode 8. Hippolyta is on her search for uh, what happened to her husband in Chicago? It, episode eight opens with Emmett Till's funeral, and this oh. this episode is primarily uh, D dealing with the death of her good friend, and there are a few moments in this where you really see like D go from sadness to anger. There's a point where she's like staring into like an arcade and you're like, why is she staring into that? Like, why is she just looking at this um, sort of arcade place? And she's like, Oh, she's probably remembering a time where her and her friend Emmett went there and hung out. And she's, she goes from like rage to grief and sadness and at one point, as she is walking around, she is confronted by uh, two cops uh, who uh, are part of the Chicago 
group of the Sons of Adam. And they what they confront her because uh, they've discovered that um, Hippolyta had something to do with Hiram's, like, Hiram's observatory. These cops, these wizard cops from Chicago, put a spell on Dee, which makes her see Topsy and Bopsy from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Topsy and Bopsy are these, like, terrifying, like, smiling-faced... Caricatures. Caricatures that haunt Dee throughout the rest of this episode... And that that's basically the episode. I anybody watch you know, we've all heard about Emmett Till's mother made the decision to have an open casket funeral just to so to show people the how badly her son was mutilated. And I think the directors and the writers just wanted us to feel pure nausea watching this funeral. Because it was, they, they perfectly captured all of the elements of a, it was a insanely hot, putrid summer's day in Chicago. Like everyone is sweating profusely. Everyone's got fans going. And then one part that really struck me is those very real reactions to his death. Like they had a puke bucket outside of this funeral for people who were walking in, seeing the body and just like, hurling after this and so as a viewer you too start feeling those like I'm, I'm sweating I'm it, it's it's how I feel when I read a Toni Morrison or an Octavia Butler it's just like everything that people are experiencing at this funeral I am now experiencing as an audience member which I didn't experience when I learned this in history books in 10th grade U- U.S. history it was like Emmett Till was killed but for whistling to a white woman next chapter and so this was the time where we actually sat with all of that grief and this is why this show can't be binged not by me uh, because it's, it's just so heavy you have to sit with yourself after that in that realm of disgust and anguish we also see Ruby going back across town and at this point Ruby knows that Christina Braithwaite is William and so she is has spoiler alert. spoiler alert and she has entered this lesbian relationship with Christina it's like they're and and she's a black woman and Christina's a white woman and they they have this love and care for one another but Christina gives zero fucks about the death of Emmett Till and Ruby is making it very clear that like well today is the one day that I don't want to be laid up with your white ass and it's I remember feeling that you know I love you and obviously we're gonna be together forever obviously but that that scene I remember feeling that internal conflict of like like seeing a mutilated body of a black boy at the hands of white people and then going and and loving a white person it it, that was really hard I think they captured that dynamic really well and then more horrifying than that these two twins that are completely haunting D was just I had to watch that through my fingers you remember that I was just like they're coming they're coming they're coming it's it's so it's a nightmare the the episode ends with D actually being caught by these monsters and them actually ripping off her arm essentially and mutilating it which I didn't catch this but uh, at one point, when Hippolyta time travels in the last episode, Atticus uh, 
discovers that she's time traveling, and Atticus also time travels. But yep. we don't see his story because the last episode was Hippolyta's episode. But when he time travels, he's sent back to the 1950s by a woman with a mechanical arm. No and way. He, yeah, he says that. And then and in episode eight, he says that, oh, a woman pushed me back through the portal with a mechanical arm. Wow. Okay, that, okay. So, okay, let's keep going. We got we got two right. more. So episode nine, rewind nineteen twenty one. This should have been the season finale. It was really good. I agree. Oh my god! Yes, this should have been the season finale. I don't care. I will I will fight y'all up and down about that. So we we discover that Hannah, uh, Atticus's ancestor from years ago, has created this book of names, this book of spells. She. She stole it. She stole it. Thank you. She stole it and escaped with this book and that it has been passed down through Atticus's ancestry, but it was burned in this, the Tulsa, the Black Wall Street massacre. And the great thing about HBO is that, you know, Watchmen was released last year or earlier this year. So we've, we've gotten to see this massacre in two separate TV shows and series, but Atticus, Letty, and Montrose decide we need to go back to 1921 before this massacre happens, rewind 1921, in order to recover and get this book of names. It's not necessary. It's not like we get to see a massacre. We get a history lesson. We get a history lesson, yes. Yeah, and I read something on Twitter that described this show as educational escapism. Mm -hmm. For example, there's so many just like, historical figures, you, oh, yeah. you're, you're introduced not only to, like, terrible, traumatic parts of black, black American mm-hmm. history, but you're also introduced to Bessie Stringfield in a couple episodes back, which was this black motorcycle woman, first um, woman to drive across all 48 states, and she also was delivering messages during the wars that America fought from one army station to the other. And she's super, like, go check her out. She's super cool. But yeah, in Rewind 1921, they go back, and at this point, Atticus has discovered that his father, Montrose, Mm -hmm. is probably not his father. Yes. And he despises Montrose for that because Montrose used to beat and um, uh, beat up Atticus to make sure that he wasn't quote unquote a sissy. And also at this time, not only has Atticus discovered that Montrose is probably not his father, but Montrose is also gay. Mm-hmm. And so Atticus, it's like you beat me because you thought I was going to become you. Exactly. Yeah. And so Atticus is, over Montrose, he's like, fuck you, dad. We're done. Mm-hmm. You're not even my dad. But as they go back in time, Atticus sees how Montrose's father treated him. And, and the layers that is it, Montrose's character. We see that. Exactly. And on top of that, you discover that that day Montrose had a, a lover, uh, a, a, a boyfriend as Thomas. a child, mm-hmm. Thomas, who is brutally killed and shot to death during these riots. And so Atticus is seeing his the fa- his father's trauma literally firsthand. And that brings a reconciliation to their relationship. But you want to talk about like the like a really exciting like time travel element to this. We've been hearing a story throughout the season about how some stranger came and saved the day for uh, Uncle George, Montrose, and Dora, Atticus's mom. Mm-hmm. Do- Atticus's mom. There's a stranger that saved them that day. 
and we're sort of... We discover who the stranger is. Yes, we discover who the stranger is. It's Atticus and our favorite character of the entire season, Hot Sauce the Bat. And the baseball the bat. bat. The baseball bat. <laughs> the bat, cue, the, enter the bat stage right. Uh, the baseball bat is used to just mollywop these white people who are a part of this riot. I just want to get into the final scene of this epic, epic episode. Uh, Letty has been granted invulnerability by Christina Braithwaite. And she is then tasked with going into this house that she knows is going to be burned and destroyed, getting the book of names. Why? Because she can't be killed. So she was rightfully so like sent in there. And so we are watching one of Atticus's ancestors being told like, y'all are going to die in this house tonight. I need this book of names from Letty. And the scene where this woman is just burning in flames and a, a captain going down with his ship in this house is just haunting. It's do you? I mean, do you remember getting chills during that scene in the worst way? Yeah. Well, the, and they take a like a very common trope of of time travel, which is if you go back in time, you don't want to do anything to fuck up. You know, if mm-hmm. you step on a butterfly, you might change everything and uh, in the future. And that's from a Ray Bradbury story. So that's like a very common trope. But they do this in such a way like I can't stop my my uh, family from being killed in the Tulsa riots because it might affect my future. And so, and as a consequence, I have to watch them be I burned. Ha- alive. I have to watch them be burned alive. I have to watch them be shot down. And that was just it was hard to watch. Very and, hard to watch. Yeah, and I. But I think, like, everyone should watch it. I think this should be required watching uh, because of the, the the history that it shows. Did we make it? Yeah. We made it to episode 10. I'm starting the timer. Yeah. Get it. Episode 10 was by far the worst episode out of all, like, the trauma and, like, yeah. intensity. Episode 10, basically. I agree. Episode 10 ends with Christina Braithwaite making the decision to try to kidnap Atticus and use all his blood this time to gain immortality and to open up the portal to Eden. And so it just is recycling what happened in episode two. The entire season, we've gotten all these tips that Atticus is going to die, Atticus is going to die, Atticus is going to die. And so I was worried I was like, you. there have to be stakes. Don't tell us he's going to die and he's not going to die. I was worried that they were going to be like, no, but he lives. I would have been disappointed if he lived. I'm just going to be honest with you. I hate it. Like, you remember in Star Wars, it was like, oh, Chewie's dead. And we mourned the loss and then he's like very much alive. I'm, I'm just, I'm glad that they like committed to doing what they said they were going to do. I know a lot of people on Twitter were like, how could you kill Atticus? He's the main character. I was like, no, there have to be stakes, people. There have to be stakes. Yeah, I appreciated that flip of the trope, which is if a hero is being told that they're going to die, there's always this implication that you can change the future because Atticus discovers that he dies when he time travels in the Hippolytus episode, uh, I Am. Anyway, uh, Jiha is actually comes back from Korea at this point, joins the team of people which it becomes important, I guess, because Atticus is kidnapped and he his wrists are like slit open and yeah, uh, biblical there. Yeah, like 
with his arms spread out and basically crucified. I know I'm saying this like sort of like, uh, because out of all like the crazy shit we've seen, that whole scene just didn't feel like yeah, it wasn't that effective. I was, like, I was like, you're killing this main character. Anyway, I actually, I actually don't, I don't know. well, I'm not going to say it because I read the book. But, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so Christina Braithwaite does this and... I'm sorry, I'm laughing because her, her dress went from, like, white to red. Like, yeah, that was supposed she to look, make it, like, like, we were supposed to feel something when that happened. I was like, huh? A yeah. wardrobe change? We don't care about that. Anyway, there's just not a lot to say to this. Oh, yeah, so the people who, who save the day are Journey, Small Let's character, Letty, and then, um, Jiha, the... Korean American, well, the Korean woman, and it felt like Hippolyta was just like pushed to the side. I agree. And Ruby, she's put into to a comatose state by Christina because you're given this implication that yes, Christina is bad and kills Tick, but at the same time, she keeps her promise to Ruby to not kill to not kill her sister, and she puts Ruby in a comatose state, even though Ruby is now on you know Team Atticus. And Hippolyta and Letty. I want to say there is this fight scene. This is something I appreciated. There was a fight scene between who we thought was Ruby, but it was, you know, Ru- the actor, Wumi. There was a fight between Ruby Baptiste and Letty Baptiste. Christina had taken over Ruby's body at that point. So we were supposed to be rooting for Journey Smollett. We're supposed to be rooting for Letty. But I felt conflicted because, again... I have not seen a dark-skinned black femme combat fighting on TV. I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, that means they had to also hire a plus-size black stunt double. Like, this is great. And so I know that we're supposed to be rooting for Letty and Journey Smollett, but something in me was watching this being like, I'm rooting for the, the dark-skinned curvy chick. Like, that's that's the me in this. And also, we've, we've fallen in love with Ruby Baptiste the entire time. And Ruby actually kind of wins this fight like she ends up throwing pregnant letty out the window and it it got crazy and i remember saying to myself yeah big girl she she, she threw out and i was like oh wait i'm not supposed to be rooting for her it was strange i'm sure you saw that tug of war that i was experiencing as i was watching these two women fight each other it, it also wasn't super clear that christina who is transformed as ruby has then puts the spell back on Letty to keep her promise to Ruby. There, th- yeah, and it, there, there was also something kind of comical about them speaking the the language of the sons of Adam. It just felt like speaking in tongue. It it, it just did. I remember Ben and I were watching it. I was just like, I I want to. I feel like somebody's about to catch the Holy Ghost right now, and I, I want to take this seriously. But yeah, so in the previous episode, they've got the Book of Names now. And the last episode, what they've done is they have studied the book of names to such an extent that Letty and Atticus are just fluent in this in the language completely of fluent. Adam. Completely fluent in the language of Adam. But the final episode is basically two episodes because the first part is them like learning a spell to cast over Christina Braithwaite. But, and then the second episode is Christina Braithwaite counteracting their spell, capturing Atticus and using his blood to do her spell. And then Jiha and Letty coming in and saving the day, which was like, oh, you have a Korean woman and the light-skinned uh, black woman uh, saving the day when Ruby, the dark-skinned woman, 
and uh, Hippolyta are shoved to the side. Yeah. Right. Yeah, something fell off about that. Also, this is where we see, you know, Dee's last stand. She's been brought back to life. She's no longer cursed, but she has this mechanical arm, which I remember thinking to myself, like, did I miss an episode? When did she get this arm? There were just a couple of misplaced. It, it felt very rushed well, to me. Yeah, she has a mechanical arm because in the previous episode, she's... They say that a woman with a mechanical arm has. I know, but the I don't see how she gets the mechanical arm. I love that she's wearing like Uncle George's jacket and things like that, but it just felt like they were trying to stuff too much in one episode. But you know what? She also has a pet Shogoth, which was pretty cool. Oh, that was great. And the ending scene is like the Shogoth like howling to the moon, which was cool. That was cool. It was cool. But it wasn't the visceral, effective episodes that we got in the penultimate episode in Meet Me in Daegu, in um, I Am. Yeah. So, it, like, that second half of the season took it up a notch, raised the stakes every single time. So, episode 10 was just like, oh. So, I don't think we need season two. Do we need a season two? Oh, absolutely. So here's here's the thing. The book is written in an episodic nature. There's like collection of short stories that have this overarching narrative. That's what they do in the book. It's similar to what they do in the TV show, but the episodic nature runs way cleaner in the TV show, and they don't put as much time in the overarching narrative, which is the tension between Atticus and... And Christina, and they're cousins. There's like this familial tension where Christina is like very, very white. Anyway, so that's the overarching narrative, but they spent so much great time on the episodic nature, like the haunted house episode, Mm -hmm. the time travel episode. And I love those episodes, but the final episode is wrapping up the overarching narrative instead of the episodic like character development that was happening in the individual episodes. So the last episode falls completely flat. I love the show, but I don't think we need a season two. And are you saying that we need a season two because episode the, because the finale fell flat? Would you feel the same way if the finale didn't fall flat? You can absolutely have a second season. And it should be more of an episodic season where you have a group of team, you have a team going on these adventures. But what is left to do? Atticus is dead. and Well, he's he's not dead. But if we bring him back to life, what work is there to be done if Christina's dead? Well, you're, you're in Lovecraft country, right? So <laughs> you have all, the, you're still monsters, they're still racist, they're yeah. still... There's ten- always going to be racist. Right. And so then you go into, you just make it... Like self-contained episodes I got of of adventures, which was what most of the season was, and that's what they should have focused on. Was well, like agree to disagree. I don't think we need a season two. I think D should be riding around the Shogoth and like killing racists throughout the U- U.S. Yeah, but can her. I watch that for another ten episodes? I mean, I could. She sure. has that cool mechanical arm. Well, Ben, I think the time has come for you to warp up the show. Absolutely. In conclusion. Watch Lovecraft Country. You could skip the final episode if you wanted, but watch and rewatch and 
That's it. Thanks, babe. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Sci-Fi Sci, the Lovecraft Country episode. We want to close out spooky season by celebrating two black directors that dropped sci-fi horror films in October 2020, the most ghostly year of all. We'll be watching Black Box, directed by Emmanuel Osei Kufour Jr., produced by Insecure's Jay Ellis, a.k.a. Lawrence. That opened at the beginning of the month. And we're going to close out by watching Bad Hair, directed by Dear White People's Justin Simeon, which dropped on October 23rd. So check out these scary films and tune into next week's episode of the Sci-Fi Sci. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.